The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and when they were not able, and they were not able, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do nothing, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The Gospel of the Lord. Father, we ask that you be with us as we open up your word this afternoon. We ask that you teach us from your word, that you transform our lives from your word. And Lord, that we can go forth from this place empowered by your word to live out our faith in our local context so that you may be glorified. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Bishop N.T. Wright shares a story about one year at an Easter morning service. He says he had arrived at the church in what he thought was good time. 
but there was already a large crowd outside, and it wasn't moving at all. The place was already packed. But he was pondering what to do when a familiar voice greeted him. And so he turned around and saw a man that he knew just a little bit, a very senior and distinguished person in the city. And the bishop was flattered to be recognized and singled out. But then came that moment, come with me, the man said. He led the bishop forward past the crowd to one of the ushers. I am Lord Smith, he said to the usher. I would be grateful if you could find my friend and myself somewhere to sit. Yet before the bishop had time to think, the two men were escorted right to the front of the church, where they were given excellent seats with a full view of the service. And Wright comments he didn't enjoy it at all as he was thinking about James chapter 2, which just so happens to have an illustration like this, dealing with the sin of partiality, of favoring the rich over the poor in the congregation. My brothers and sisters, last week we read and we heard from James 1 about being doers of the word and not hearers only. The implanted word of the gospel transforms us and how we are to live. And when we take the letter of James in, we need to understand Jewish wisdom literature. Jewish wisdom is a practical wisdom. It's a heart knowledge, what we call sapentia. It is a faith that worketh love on both the vertical, our relationship with the Lord, and the horizontal, our relationship with our neighbors. You see, sapentia is a participatory knowledge that moves beyond scientia, which is merely data factual knowledge about God. So we are to move from knowing about God to personally knowing Him. The person who truly knows God exhibits a true and a lively faith, which is a faith that does what? It's a faith that worketh love on both the vertical and the horizontal. Love for God and love for neighbor. It is a life that has been transformed because of the gospel of Jesus. It is a life that has come under the reign and the rule of God. And it shows by how a person lives. It is a life that follows the truly wise one, the truly wise life that Jesus lived and modeled in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet a plethora of people scattered across the American church, and indeed all across our country as well, claim they have faith when the fruit of their lives is to the contrary. They do not have a true and lively faith. For what they have is what James depicts as a dead faith. A dead faith. This is the sort of thing the Apostle Paul warned Titus about in Titus 1.16, saying, They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. And indeed, in our own tradition, the Anglican tradition, Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, in his homily, a short declaration of the true, lively, and Christian faith, calls this type of faith idle, barren, and unfruitful. And simply put, my friends, this kind of faith is not the telos, it's not the end goal of the Christian life. It is a counterfeit faith. James reminds believers scattered all over the Roman Empire that the implanted word of the gospel is meant to transform lives. 
with a faith that worketh love, a true and lively faith. Therefore, let us ponder once more just how amazing the gospel really is. For it changes us and it moves us from merely knowing about God to personally knowing Him, loving Him, and following Him. For the truly wise one, our Lord Jesus, modeled to us what a faith that worketh love looks like. And as those who have been given a new heart because of the saving works of God in Jesus' death and resurrection, as those who have entered the kingdom of God and live under the reign and the rule of God, the reign and rule of King Jesus, we too are to follow in the Lord's footsteps of exhibiting a true and a lively faith. We too are to follow in our Lord's footsteps. So if you please follow along with me, we'll be beginning at James chapter 2, verse 1 in your Bibles. Now I grew up in Dallas-Fort Worth. I don't know about any of you here, but Dallas-Fort Worth is an area and it has a culture that is consumed with sizing people up the second that you see them. Where do you live? How much money do you make? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of clothes do you wear? And of course, in many areas of the DFW area, there are churches in which worldliness has seeped into congregational life, favoring the wealthy over the poor. But although we are in the world, my friends, we are certainly not to be of it. James wants his readers, primarily Jewish believers, to be on guard and to not let the world get some of its filth on them. Several years ago, I went to Israel for the first time in 2017, and I had a German-Jewish tour guide by the name of Ronnie. And he was always talking about getting schmutz on him and all the stories and places that we were going to. Well, James is writing to our house churches all over the Roman Empire, warning them, warning them to not let the imperial culture get schmutz on them. And James gives the illustration of showing partiality in the church of favoring those who are rich and they dress well over those who are poor and wear shabby clothing. You see, the giving of glory to the rich and to the wealthy, while distinguishing and minimizing the poor as lesser, is contrary to faith in Messiah Jesus. After all, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was poor. When Jesus came to our world, he was born in a stable cave and was laid in a stone feeding trough. For animals. In his ministry, Jesus said, Birds have nest, foxes have den, but the Son of Man has no place to raise, to lay his head. And of course, we cannot forget the example of our Lord in John 13, where he strips himself and he washes the stinky feet of the apostles. Don't let the world schmutz get on you, is James' point to the people of God. The Lord has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. To those who love him. In other words, God has blessed the poor. Do not dishonor the common man or the common woman whom God has richly blessed in Jesus. And besides, James points out, it is the rich who are persecuting you. It is the wealthy and the powerful of the imperial culture who drag believers into court. They are the ones who rage and war against the gospel. And in this we remember that human beings look at the outward appearance 
but God looks at the heart. And the kind of heart that should be living and beating in the congregational life is a new heart. The new heart that exists because of the implanted word of truth, the glorious gospel of Jesus. So be doers of the word and not hearers only. A faith that worketh love, a true and lively faith that lives under the reign and the rule of God. It does not practice the sin of partiality. Its aim is to faithfully walk in the footsteps of Jesus. Jeff Smead shares a story about a young boy who was hurrying to catch a bus. And carrying his gifts under his arm, he was struggling to make it with his crutches. Then suddenly, a man bumped into him, knocking his packages in all sorts of directions. The man paused briefly before scolding the young boy for getting into his way. But then another gentleman saw the boy's distress, quickly picked up the scattered parcels, and slipped a $10 bill into his pocket, saying, I'm sorry, I hope this makes up for your trouble. The boy couldn't remember being shown such kindness and called out for him. Mr., thank you, and sir, are you Jesus? No, replied the man, but I'm one of his followers. My brothers and sisters, the royal kingdom law of love does not favor some while putting others down. It doesn't show any discrimination. God did not favor Israel by rejecting everyone else. For as it is written, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You see, God shows no favoritism. God shows no partiality. This is even emphasized in Paul's writings. But if you are out of alignment on the horizontal with loving your neighbor, guess what? You are out of alignment on the vertical with loving the Lord. So James has given his audience the plumb line of loving your neighbor as yourself for them to discern where they are and where they are in their congregational life. Do they have a true and a lively faith? If living out our lives is one of love, then we're doing great. But if not, we have sinned against the royal kingdom law of love, and we are convicted. We are convicted. Lawrence R. Farley notes, to transgress the law was the absolute worst thing a Jewish person could hear. James is speaking about one's attitude to God, about a man who deliberately repudiates one of God's commands to definitely choose his own way. James's hearers are rejecting the God who told them to love their neighbor as themselves. So, if you do not commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, but you end up killing your neighbor instead, you have become a transgressor of the royal kingdom law of love. You haven't just gotten out of alignment on the horizontal, but also on the vertical as well. The ESV Study Bible comments, the law was considered an interdependent whole, and any infraction constituted a breaking of the law as a whole. Thus favoritism, as in James 2.9, makes one guilty, a legal term liable before God's court for the whole law. But because of the glorious gospel of Jesus, we have been given new hearts, my friends. God's royal kingdom law of love is the law of liberty for us now, for you and me, in Christ and the ongoing work 
of the Holy Spirit, we have a new reorientation of life to live in accordance to the will of God, seeking to love both Him and each other, our neighbors. God has given us a new heart where He has written His royal kingdom law of love on them. You see, we are new creations in Jesus, for the gospel brings about a transformed life. And as those who have been transformed, because of the gospel, we are to live wisely, for we will be judged under this law of liberty. And in this context, James is stating that what we do to others and how we treat them is huge. Huge. We're not to miss it. And of course, as we listen and we read his words, we're to recall the words of Jesus. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. David Nystrom writes, in verse 13, James continues to follow in the Jesus tradition by arguing that for those who do not show mercy, no mercy will be shown. The Old Testament affirms that God is merciful and that people should therefore also show mercy to one another. This was a hallmark of the teaching of Jesus. A merciful attitude is one of the evidences that a person is alive in Christ. Amen? And in this strong language, we cannot forget the hope. The hope that James ends this section on, my friends. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Those who have given mercy will receive it from our most merciful As the Father is merciful, so we too, as his children, are to be merciful. Like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. Mercy begets mercy. And our acts of mercy are evidence of a faith that worketh love, that overflows in love. A true and lively faith. And this brings us to James' point regarding faith and works. Walter B. Knight shares a story about a Scotsman who operated a little rowboat for transporting passengers. One day a passenger noticed the good old man had carved on one oar the word faith, and on the other oar the word works. Curiosity led the passenger to ask the meaning of all this, and the old man was delighted for the opportunity to share, saying, I will show you, I will show you. So he dropped one oar and plied the other called works. And they just went around in circles. Then he dropped that oar and plied with the one called faith. And the little boat went around in circles again, but this time the other way around. After all this, the old man picked up both faith and works, and plying both oars together, sped swiftly over the water, explaining to his inquiring fare, you see, that is the way it is in the Christian life. Dead works without faith are useless, and faith without works is dead also getting you nowhere. But faith and works pulling together make for safety, progress, and blessing. My brothers and sisters, James asks, what good does it do if someone says they have faith, but they do not have works? Does an idle, barren faith save anyone? We must be doers of the word, my friends, and not hearers only. Yet James, being the practical teacher that he is, Next gives an illustration about a person who sees a brother or a sister poorly clothed and lacking in food. Suppose that happened here at Holy Trinity. Suppose you saw a brother or sister in need, but you said to them, Go in peace. 
be warmed and be filled without giving them the things that they need for their body. He asked, what, is, what good is that? What's the point to that? And his point is that faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Dead. Billy Graham put it this way. Faith is taking the gospel in. Works is taking the gospel out. Say that with me. Faith is taking the gospel in. Works is taking the gospel out. And because the gospel brings transformation, our faith is not idle, nor is it dead. It's alive. It's alive. It's a faith that worketh love. It's a true and it's a lively faith. But what James says in verse 18 is so timely and it's so relevant for our own day in the American church. People say they have faith, but where are their works? Even the demons believe but they produce only works of unrighteousness. But the gospel, my friends, completely changes a person's life. Completely changes it. It flips us right side up. It's not just scientia, that data, factual knowledge about God. We move to sapientia, the wisdom, heart knowledge of participation. You see, the new heart comes about because the gospel brings a radical change of life. We now have union with God and Jesus Christ by faith and by baptism. And we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son, the kingdom of God. We now live under the rule and the reign of God Almighty. And the Lord gets to work in us. He gets to work in us, in all of us. And we are to participate with the Holy Spirit to cultivate what God wants. We need to think of Jesus here. The goal and the telos of our life is to look more and more like him. Because he is the truly wise-hearted one. The one we're meant to imitate. The one that we're meant to follow. And he modeled for us a true and lively faith. What it looks like to live a life of love on the vertical and on the horizontal. And of course, we need the Holy Spirit to do this. Amen? So folks saying that they have faith without works is absolutely useless and unhelpful because that kind of faith is dead. Where's the proof of transformation? Where's the overflow of faith in works of love? Where is the practical wisdom of participatory knowledge? Craig West shares about one of the greatest tightrope walkers of all time, Charles Blondin. And one of the most often told stories of Blondin is of his crossing over the Niagara Falls on a tightrope several times. And at some point, he turned to a large audience filled with reporters, and he asked them, how many believe I can walk across this tightrope over the falls pushing a wheelbarrow? And of course, the crowd cheered loudly, and they said, you can do it. You can do it. But then Blondin asked, how many people believe I can push a wheelbarrow across the tightrope with a man sitting inside it? And of course the crowd said, yes, you can do it, you can do it. But Blondin then pointed to one of the most enthusiastic men in the audience and he said, all right, you get into the wheelbarrow. And the man quickly ran away. And Blondin demonstrated that there is often a great difference between belief, the faith we say we have, 
and the action faith we really have. My friends, there is a multitude of people in the American church claiming faith. But where is the action? Where is the faith that worketh love, that overflows in love? This lack of faith reveals to us that not as many people have responded to the gospel as we initially think. It is finite, which is faith in name only. But those who truly do seek to walk and live out the wise-hearted life are to participate with the Spirit within, to please the Lord. The Holy Spirit works within us, and we are to cultivate, as I said earlier, with Him. For as Thomas Kramer says, the Spirit assists believers to serve and please God, to keep His favor, to fear His displeasure, to continue His obedient children, showing thankfulness again by observing or keeping his commandments, and that freely, for true love chiefly, and not for dread of punishment, or love of temporal reward, considering how clearly without our deservings we have received his mercy and pardon freely. It's a long quote, but it's a great one. My friends, day by day, by the Lord's grace, as we become more conformed to the image of Jesus, our lives shall testify to the reality and the power of the gospel. That in Jesus Christ, we really are new creations, walking in the footsteps of the one who shows us what it means to be truly wise. Who shows us what it means to be truly human. To love the Lord with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. May the Holy Spirit continue to empower you and me. So that we all may grow in a faith that worketh love to greater conformity to King Jesus. And may the implanted word of truth in our lives, the glorious gospel of God, continue to bear fruit in us, a true and lively faith. Let us pray. O God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, come to serve his perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.